0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We are approaching the end of our Torah reading cycle. Ha'azinu brings us to almost the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32 of the book. Moshe's... Famous poem to the people. He has finished reciting Deuteronomy. He's finished reciting the law. There's been the covenanting ceremony. And now he delivers this poem. And after this, our last parsha is Vezotabracha, which is where we get the description of, uh, of the death of Moshe at the very end. Ha'azinu. Remember, do we remember what makes biblical poetry clever and beautiful in the ancient world? It doesn't rhyme. There are couplets, there are two, you know, collections of two lines, and it's saying the same thing two ways. So taking something and saying it in a different way is what makes biblical poetry beautiful to the reader right that the reader goes oh clever right that um so that's sometimes how we know what certain ancient hebrew words mean if we have a word in a poem like this that we don't see anywhere else how do we know exactly what it means right it, if it's really only used once and it's fallen out of um usage in later texts we can't be sure what it means so scholars often look to biblical poetry because if if the two lines mean the same thing, just said differently, then you look at the word you're not sure about, and you look at the word in the next sentence, and it's like, oh, well, then it must... If you're talking about rain, right, then this must be some kind of word about rain, because that's how we see it in the second verse. So it not only um, is important to understand that so we understand why it sounds so repetitive, but also um, to know that it's it's an important way that linguists actually study the the biblical Hebrew. So why don't we let someone read, and I'm going to try to do what we did last couple of weeks and not interrupt as quickly, so you can hear the voice of the Deuteronomist speaking uh, this poetry, and then we'll take a closer look at it.
2: Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words I utter. May my discourse come down as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like the showers on young growth, like droplets on the grass, for the name of the Lord I proclaim, give glory to our Lord. The rock, his deeds are perfect, yea, all his ways are just. A faithful God, never false, true and upright is he. Children unworthy of him, that crooked, perverse generation, their baseness has played him false. Do you thus requite the Lord, O dull and witless people? Is not he the father who created you, fashioned you, and made you endure? Remember the days of old, consider the years of ages past. Ask your father, he will inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave nations their homes and set the divisions of man, he fixed the boundaries of people in relation to Israel's number. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his own allotment. He found him in a desert region in an empty howling waste. He engirded him, watched over him, guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle who rouses his nestlings, gliding down to his young, so did he spread his wings and take him, bear him along on his pinions. The Lord alone did guide him, no alien god at his side. He set him atop the highlands to feast on the yield of the earth. He fed him honey from the crag and oil from the flinty rock, curd of kine and milk of flocks, with the best of lambs, and rams of Bashan and he goats, with the very finest wheat and foaming grape blood was your drink. So Jashroun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and gross and coarse. He forsook the god who made him, and spurned the rock of his support. They incensed him with alien things, vexed him with abomination. They sacrificed demons, no gods, gods they had never known. New ones who came but lately, who stirred not your father's fears. You neglected the rock that begot you, forgot the god you brought forth.
1: Okay, so you hear the the repetition. This is a type of poetry that we know from the ancient world. Some literary analysts relate this to a genre of poetry in the ancient world, in Mesopotamia. So what, what do we know about this language of God being the king that has, passed, has done past benefactions for the people? This is the language of the suzerain treaty. We've talked about this. A conquering king cuts a covenant with a conquered king That is the model that precedes our idea of covenant. So we crown God as king, this crazy new idea in the ancient world, and make a covenant understanding that God is the king of kings, the most powerful king, more powerful than our earthly king. So the covenant model works. When the vassal king betrays the king, the conquering king, there's consequences to that. This poem is a genre of poetry where the conquering king brings the vassal king up on charges. Why is that here? Why is that genre here? The genre of
0: the story.
1: The, this genre of poetry is a conquering king bringing a vassal king and its people to task... For bad behavior. bad behavior. So why is it here? Why would why would the redactor have put this poem here? This is just before they go into the promised land. This is right before they're going into the promised the Moses land. Moses has done some bad things. The people have done some bad the things. the time they come on trial. And what's coming? Well, Moses is not going to be to go Correct. But what do we know is coming?
2: Exile, yes. Yeah, this was written much later Uh, to account for why it was that they went in exile. Correct.
1: So this This is much later. This is this is the justification for what happens in 586 BCE. So it's put back into the imagination of Moshe. And into the mouth of Moshe, looking forward, but it's written, of course, backward, retroactively, right? After they have suffered defeat, after they have been exiled from the land, how do they explain that? If God is all knowing, all powerful, and all good, which is what they assumed about the Almighty, how could they have been conquered? How could they have been exiled? How could so many have been slaughtered? How could that happen? This, moral
2: failings.
1: this is their explanation for how and why that happened. They did bad things. They morally and ethically failed. The God, the king, who had done such incredible things for them. This is the only way they could explain it. Yes?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: in... The reading that we heard, the, uh, it's always him, 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 singular. But in this mm-hmm. women's yeah, book, it's, it's, it's
0: they, it's yeah. plural. It's gender. It's all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So when you say him, who are, are you talking capital H or lowercase h?
3: Lowercase.
1: Him, Yeshurun, With
3: Moses.
1: Doesn't that mean the
2: Jewish people? Isn't that like because Yaakov, Yisrael is the Jewish
1: yeshurun, people. Yeshurun, right? So it's it's the collective singular. I was
0: going to
1: ask you, this yeshurun. yeshurun, right? So this is the name of the people, Israel. So him means it. In English, we wouldn't say him; we'd say it. You took this people. It was nothing. It was hungry. You fed it right so in hebrew hebrew is a gendered language there is no neuter there is no it you have to say i mean you can say it but that's a translation and this is seems to be an anthropomorphism of the people well, i guess you can't anthropomorphize what's already a person um, it's 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 the uh, it's the caricature of the people right israel I brought you out. I fed you. He was Israel, right? So it's it's the poetic form. Um, interesting. So how does the women's Torah commentary translate that? They. So like in they. they. Yeah. We. we. Yeah.
0: It, where it says in the Red Book, God found him in this desert, uh, girded him, watched over him. It's all them, them. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, it's so it is definitely... Singular in the Hebrew. Masculine, singular. Most definitely. It makes some sense to me that the women's Torah commentary looking to get away from gendered language would change it. But I, for one, think when you're dealing with poetry, what does changing it do, right? Like, okay, so you're going to read in the English they, we, but the poetry is personifying Israel. And the reason that's a powerful image for me, which is one of the things I was going to talk about, is there is a lot of feminine God language here. A lot. So when we get this, you know, image, so look at verse 13. Oh, wait, sorry. Go back. 10 that we just quoted. God found him in a desert region in an empty howling verse 10 in an empty howling waste. He engirded him, watched over him, guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Right. So what an intimate image that is. What do we do? if, If anything's coming at our face, what do we do? We instantly shield our eyes. Right. We immediately protect our eyes. The apple of, the, of your eyes. That's exactly what this is. Exactly what this is. Like an eagle that rouses its nestlings, gliding down to its young. So did God spread God's wings and take him, bear him along on God's pinions. God alone did guide him, no alien God at his side.
0: Pretty fair imagery. What? Imagery.
1: Beautiful imagery, yes. Very,
2: very motherly.
1: Very motherly. That, you know, that the mother bird rouses the nestlings, right? Rouses them and then bears them on wings, right? So, what is that about? Do we remember what that image is about? So, if one spreads one's wings and has one's nestlings on one's wings, First of all, you are supporting them. You're flying. They are riding. That's number one. Number two is anything that's shot from the ground hits the parent bird. The nestlings are protected. So this idea that Israel is vulnerable and completely exposed in a howling waste and God comes and launches Israel on God's pinions on an incredibly beautiful image. And the last sentence of that, no alien God, right? So I always hear this plaintive parental voice in this poem. It's like, who bore you? Who carried you when you couldn't walk? Who wiped your nose? Who kept you from falling down the stairs? That was me. Not Baal. Not Asherah. And where do you turn? Where do you pray? What what are your idols of? People who are not your parents. I'm your parent. God set him atop the highlands to feast on the yield of the earth. Very maternal imagery here. Fed him honey from the crag, and oil from the flinty rock. Curd says, of kine. Excuse me. Here it says nursing.
0: nursing.
1: Yes. More. Yes. Exactly. Right. Um, this imagery of suckling. Mm-hmm. Curd of kine and milk of flocks. Right. So this this idea of all the things with which God fed the people. Right, and it's it's literally in Hebrew, suckled. And what is suckling about? Feeding, feeding something that is helpless, that doesn't do anything other than receive and draw from the source. Meaning, you have nothing without the source of life. I. I am the source of all of your nourishment. I have fed you bountifully. All Israel did was receive. Remember the manna. hmm mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm.
0: so What you just said reminds me very forcefully of of, um, of the poem that Rabbi Nick read just the other day. Yes. He read a, he read a poem by Billy Collins. I don't know if you saw. So there's a poem by Billy Collins called "The Lanyard." About what? The lanyard. Uh Uh-huh. You know, the the things with plastic and stuff. Right. Right. And it's about this boy who is kind of like bored at camp. He makes this lanyard, and it's for his mother. And in his view, despite all the things that she's done for him over the years, this makes it square. He's gifted, he's okay, you know, she, she does all these things for him, and okay, here's this landing that I made for you, mom, when I was bored
1: at camp, but I didn't really want to do it, but they made me do it, and I actually kind of got into it, but I made it for you, and okay, so we're square. We're so even. We're
0: often so much like that with God, in the sense that God does all these things for us, and we think that if we do like one nice thing that we're supposed to do all
1: along, <laughs> we're even. Great. Right. You know, and it's like, what like you said. Right. The the mayor's joke that the the, that he told from the BIMA that. You know, the person is trying, you know, desperately to find a parking space, and it's a very important appointment, and they're going to be late, and it's going to be horrible if they're late, and they can't be late. And so they pray fervently, oh God, God of my ancestors, if you find me a parking space, I promise to go to shul every Shabbos, I'll observe, I promise I'll study Torah with the rabbi, I promise, I promise, and just then, right in front of the building, a car leaves with the perfect spot. Available for exactly the size of the car, and so the person turns to the heavens and says, "It's okay, I found a spot." <laughs> right? That we we credit anything else for our success and our nourishment that we've grown fat is because we acquired food, right? <laughs> right? Um, and uh, and that's so. That's what verse fifteen. Yeshurun grew fat, well nourished. Right to be fat in the ancient world is a sign of incredible wealth. Right, you—they're not big people in Mesopotamia. Right, look at Egyptians. Look at you know, at at Iraq. Look at Iran. They're they're not large people. Right, so to grow fat like animals, like anything, is to be well fed. Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. What kicks? Like animals that are, you know, not wanting to cooperate. Kick.
2: Also baby in the womb. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You grew fat and gross and coarse and spurned the rock of your support. Vets God with abominations. They sacrificed to demons. Here's an interesting turn. Lo Eloha. No gods. <clears throat> like that's, what does that even <laughs> mean, right? So are you, I'm not even going to call it other gods, <laughs> right? You were sacrificing to n- no gods.
0: <laughs> Maybe that was their way of describing what we today would call uh, nihilism,
1: nihilism. Interesting. You know, just sort of like, you will, you know, you, you go, you're basically, you're going towards death, you're going towards negation. I mean I would call it fake gods. Okay, fake gods. And and later I was reading one commentary that said, um, they sacrifice to no gods and so you're gonna be a no people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? A people without a land, a people you that's what happens. They become a no people. That's what you get. Actions have consequences.
0: Okay
1: imagery before of the bird and um, I remember reading that when the people of Ethiopia were taken to Israel there was a particular prayer that they said because they didn't know about airplanes yet what it is is they interpreted the their flight to Israel as this prophecy yes it was this prophecy that they were talking about yes that that th- they said, look, it has come true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't know about airplanes. They were like, well, right. that's what it means, is that we were lifted was, on... What was the name of that project? Solomon? Eagles
2: eagles, 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 eagles. eagles wings. Uh-huh.
1: And there were several. Yeah.
2: yeah.
3: There were several. Oh.
1: And for them, you know, that, they, who knew this text by heart, that, that's what happened. They were lifted on eagles wings. And actually, it's not eagle. It's raven. No,
3: a raven. Oh.
1: It's not an eagle. To to right. So, um, all right, or at least that's what that's what the bird expert in Duluth, who was a expert bird watcher, told me about this. Whose parents were from Israel, said that this is Nesher is now eagle, but it wasn't them. All right.
3: So oh, I'm sorry, I, I, it's important to me. You mean the translation eagle is not good. It should be raven. Is it should be ra-
1: He's some s- experts believe it should be raven. Okay. Why? Cuz they do. <laughs> <laughs> <makes a> <laughs>
3: All
1: right. 18. About what what birds are native, what birds are not, what who's famous for their wingspan, who's fa- you know I mean that it and other uses of nesher seem to point to raven not to eagle.
2: Of course, as Americans, the eagle yeah. has a special meaning to us that has That's nothing right. to do with
1: Torah. That's right. God forbid. Or maybe it did. There's something that doesn't right. have anything to do maybe with Torah. The, birds. I
2: mean, maybe the national bird was chosen because of
1: that. I have no idea. Well, I think nesher commonly now means yeah. eagle. But but they're saying originally eagles wouldn't have been in, I don't know. <laughs> All right, 18. More of this language. You neglected the tzur. The rock that gave you birth. I don't like begot you here. Because what does begot tend to mean? Where do we tend to see that word?
3: Came
2: from. Genealogies.
1: In genealogies. And where do we see it in genealogy? Fathers. Fathers. So-and-so begat so-and-so, which means it's his seed. Right? I'm not saying it's the only use of it, but I, f- I feel like birthing is more the... Imagery here.
0: Well, the next line is... Laledet to you know to give birth. The next line definitely laboring to bring you forth.
1: Exactly right. So you neglected the rock that birthed you. Forgot the God who brought you forth. This clearly is maternal language. Very clearly, mother imagery. Absolutely, without a doubt. Even though the Hebrew is very male, Tzul rock is male. It's very clearly birthing language that we have here. Um, God saw and was vexed, says my text, and spurned God's own sons and daughters and said, I will hide my countenance from them. Right? Astira fanai. I will hide my face and see how they fare in the end. Right, This is how the rabbis talk about evil in the world one of the one of the many idioms they use to talk about that is hester panim the hiding of god's face that there are some things when god turns terrible things happen it doesn't mean god isn't there it doesn't mean god isn't available again but there's a hester panim there's a turning of the face and this is one of the rabbinic Uh, Images, as well as the sitra achra, the the other side, the dark side. Psalm 27
2: that is said at this season contains that plea, God, let me, don't hide your face from me. It's very much the same. I have a question. It says, I hide my, uh, this translation, I hide my countenance from them and see how they fare in the end. Kind of implies that God doesn't know what's going to happen. Well,
1: (laughs) Well, right, like so, it's a little bit more like you know, yeah. Go ahead and touch that. Let's see how that goes for you, (laughs) right? I know how that's going to go, right? It's
0: small. It's peevish.
1: Ah, so God's peevish here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When the when the children are calling someone else "mommy" (laughs) and giving her lanyards.
0: Yeah. God's
1: small and peevish? Hmm?
0: Well, God has made in people's image, so that's... They're peevish,
1: they're peevish. <laughs> what, When I say to my daughter, do you need to see the scar? Do you need to see the scar? Yeah, again. Again? <laughs> like a fish they filleted me for, for this? <laughs> that is not peevish that is you should know from what I suffered to bring you into this world for this Mm -hmm. little pisher right so (laughs) maybe this peevish usually she turns to me she says no I'm good (laughs) so kind of that it's the it's the pained parent who's been betrayed by their offspring and for which they have cared so lovingly, so patiently. And God is hurt. I mean, that's my read of this. God is hurt. And what happens when we get really, really hurt? We get
0: mad.
1: We get really mad. Because mad is way more comfortable to feel than betrayed. And so we go to anger and we lash out because that feels way safer and way better to us than feeling devastated by the one closest to us, the one we've loved and cared for the most in the world. That's what I hear here. And of course we create the divine in our image. What else can we do? (laughs) Right? Of course. Um, So it's, Absolutely makes a whole lot of sense to me that this is how Israel explains its own terrible, terrible experience of exile, given the image of God as a loving parent. This is the only thing that can make any sense. Yes. All right. So this is read at a time of year when we are talking about having gone astray this is read often between Yom Kippur uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We often read this approaching Yom Kippur. And so it's this whole idea of owning right the ways that we have served other gods, that so we have put other things as the priority, not godliness. Not the ways we're supposed to behave with one another, not the ways we're supposed to grow and change and challenge ourselves to be better people. We've put other things At the top of the priority list for us, you know, in our reconstructionist language, that is what serving other gods to me anyway means right when we make wealth status power success, whatever the heck that means when we make that absolutely what all of our energy and time and attention and talents and skills and longings goes towards that's worship. And if that's what we're worshiping in the language of Ha'azinu, it is a betrayal of those things that are life-giving. Those things that truly have enabled us to succeed. Other people's compassion, education, love, affection, having been tended, having been given. that, that That's what enables our success. That's stepping on other people, obsessing, buying, consuming, right? That's That's idolatry. So the promise, of course, is that there's always the vision of return. There's always this vision that tshuva is possible, and it's that that we count on. It's that that we have just come through the experience, hopefully, of doing tshuva. We are commanded, as I've said many times, to believe at the end of Yom Kippur that we have been forgiven. And I read one, I'm not sure if I gave it to you or not, Uh, it all gets confusing by the end, Um, but um, there was one thing I read that was so beautiful about, we part ways here. Moshe stands looking at the promised land, knowing he'll never get in. The people now are moving with Joshua into the promised land, they're going that way, and we're going back to Genesis. This is where we part ways, right, that... Israel's going into the promised land. We go back to the beginning. We go back to creation. Um, after it's a beautiful, beautiful, um, observation. Maybe we'll get it right this time. Maybe we'll get it right this time. Halavai. It should only be Richard. It should only, only be writer, writer, writer. All right. So we'll hand out some thoughts. Some insights.
3: But that also bring, doesn't bring that, that the God who is punishing order. We have to fear God. Also at the same time, it brings the imagery that brings yes, yes. comes to mind to me.
1: That I, I'm sorry, what did you say?
3: I don't the imagery that it brings to me that we have to fear God at the same time, and He's a punishing God. Also,
1: a hundred percent. You know what I'm saying? You betray anybody who's an authority, and you can count on there being consequences.
3: And that's why you said in the the justification for exile that comes from that particular we're being punished.
1: Yes. Well, how else do you explain it? What else would you do with it? God is an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing being, and you suffer. How else do you explain it? There is no other way than we deserved it and got punished. There's not another way. So what have we done? We've had to let some of those fall. We can't have God be all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Otherwise, everything terrible that happens to us is a punishment. There's no other way to explain it. Right? So uh, the people who are critical of a punishing God, if you start with those three as your starting place, all-powerful, All-knowing and all-good. How do you explain bad things? God forgot? God's all-knowing. God couldn't help it? God's all-powerful. God's all-good? Then why would God do something terrible? if he
3: knew we were going to do something bad.
1: We have free will. God can't control what we do.
2: Then God's not all-powerful.
1: God is all powerful. God chose, in God's almightiness, to, to give, give free us will. free will.
3: <laughs> but there's a there's a thing, something in my mind that comes in with the idea that if you come from fear, the opposite of love is fear. It's not hate to me. When you come <coughs> from fear only, it's not out of goodness that you do things, but it's out of fear. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. So I have difficulty to to. <laughs>
1: It. I don't exercise out of love. I exercise out of fear.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't want to die of a coronary, and I don't want breast cancer. So I try to reduce my risk by, God help me, the treadmill sometimes. But it's not because I love it. And
2: it's not God love. No, no. That's, no that's my point difference.
1: is we can do lots of good things out of fear. We can do a lot of good things out of fear.
3: But the mindfulness of what you're doing is very different if you come from the right
1: place. Ah, now we're using the language of right and wrong. That is a very slippery slope. And we should be very careful, I think, how we use language about right mindset and wrong mindset. I don't care if people write the check because they feel guilty or they write the check out of love. I really don't care. Write the check. (laughs) Right? So... Sure, can we have this vision that when we come from this wonderful, loving, positive place, things are better? Yes, okay, great. That's not always going to happen. Sometimes we are motivated by other things. As long as we're doing the right thing, Judaism doesn't care.
3: That's a very interesting way of doing
1: it. We are based in action. We are based on what we do, not on what we think about it. Now, is it helpful on all kinds of levels to come from a loving, generous place? Of course it's helpful, but that's utilitarian, isn't it? That's just service of us. I'm going to stay positive because it lowers my blood pressure. I'm going to stay positive because that's what Okay, that's still all about me, isn't it? But does that really matter to you if you're hungry? If I feed you because I feel guilty? Or I feed you because I feel loving and generous and wonderful? Like... Judaism says it doesn't matter to you as long as you get the food and your children are fed. That's what's important. So I'm not I'm not negating mindset, I'm not negating approach, I'm not saying we shouldn't cultivate love. I I, I get very nervous about what I call spiritual junk food. <laughs> there is a lot of spiritual junk food out there, and it's cotton candy, and it tastes great, and it's very fluffy and beautiful. And it doesn't do anything to deeply nourish one. And a lot of that spiritual junk food sounds like, but I have the best intention, blah, 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 blah. That's lovely. Is anyone being fed? Are, are there, you know, school supplies for kids who need them? I don't, I don't really care about how you feel today in your, like, great, but is that resulting in action in the world or not? And if not, what good does it do? do? Do you know what I'm saying? I think there's this way that it's the intention or the, the experience, the feeling becomes somehow the, the focus and the goal. And that makes Judaism really nervous. Cause then it's, then it's still all about me. It's still self-serving. Exactly. It's navel-gazing, which, Lovely, that's great. But all of that like should move us towards changing the world from what it is to what it should be. And, and yes, we have le- I want to be clear that we have left this fear model. This is not what motivates us and I mean this is not the god that we envision or imagine anymore in reconstructionist Judaism for sure. We've let either all-powerful, all-knowing or all-good go. You have to Or else you can't, right? How how do we explain certain things, right? So so whatever that is for you, Um, we don't have God as a being in Reconstructionism. That's where we start. God is not a being. God doesn't think. God doesn't decide. God doesn't cause, right? God is reality, capital R. God is all of this. It is the unfolding of all of this. I feel like we can still be motivated and should be motivated by fear that we're not taking seriously enough. Global warming is a perfect example. We are not scared enough about the destruction of the species of this planet, us included. We are not nearly scared enough or motivated by nearly enough fear around that. and. That concerns a lot of us, is that we need to shake ourselves awake. I mean, that's what Yom Kippur is about. doesn't concern on (laughs) Trump at all. Speaking of this poem, he who has it all, he who has everything, and understands that he acquired it, and he got it, and so the way he sees things must be the right way. This is exactly what Torah warns against. Don't, don't you, when you get there, you're going to think you did this. I suckled you. It all came from me. And you're letting other people starve?
2: All all of this is an attempt to say in language what really can't be expressed in language. Yes. And language is all we have. we, We tend to think we're so superior But our minds are extremely limited, and we're limited by human language. And so whether it's this or other things, we're trying to describe the indescribable using whatever language we have. Right. And we have no choice, because that's all we have with our limited minds. But I don't think we can... I think part of what this says, or or what Rabbi Amy is saying, is we can't get so wrapped up in the language that we get lost in the language and forget that it's just, not just, but it's poetry trying to express the inexpressible. And it's, if you want, the best approximation.
1: So it's the ineffable, right? How do we, how do we articulate the ineffable? How do we articulate that which, by definition, is inarticulable Articulatable. Yeah, We use um, language,
2: which is all we, we have. We
1: use language, which is all we have. And I will own this is a different theology than our theology. I think I just sometimes feel like you know, we, we tend to say, that's the angry old punishing God. We've moved on. It's like, well, really?
2: But these were serious people who wrote this, and they seriously felt this, and we have a lot of the same emotions. Maybe we don't yeah. express it the same way, mm-hmm. that's right. but it can talk to us without us taking it literally. We have to probe, I think, what they were thinking. All right, let's... Also, it's a
0: universal expression of Yeah. I mean, I read this, and I I understand that sense of how could you do this to me. So it's a universal Mm -hmm. sense of maybe God is not being perfect, but thank God I'm not perfect either. And, you know, and all of a sudden I read this, and I think, oh, my children are so vulnerable. These feelings Mm -hmm. I have are so harsh. And it makes me think about, it motivates me to be kinder to them, right? so... I mean, parents
1: wrote this poetry. Right? Like, uh, right, right, you're saying, wow, I, I get that as a parent. Parents wrote this. It was parents who came up with the image of the betrayed parent because they know that pain. Is there any pain like that? Of course not. And those same parents, right? Hopefully, you know, felt for their kids what you're saying is that that when you look at it that way, it's like, but they're so vulnerable, and it's like, wait a minute, I got to protect them even from my own my own anger at them.
3: Right, That's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh my
1: god. All right, let's look at the page that looks like this. I don't know what number it is in your packet. Mine or loose. It's not in the packet. What? We don't have it. We don't have it. What happened, Mapitom? Do you have this one? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, What's it's, it's it's connected. Connected. Velveteen. no not that one. Inhabiting not the Velveteen, Velveteen. Rabbi. No, the, the, inhabiting inhabiting vulnerability. Yes, you have that. What? But you don't have the. Okay. On there. No, because it should have done it should have done one to two sided copies. It didn't do it. Okay. So I'm gonna read to you um, just a, a little paragraph. There are no good old days by Rabbi Oren Chayon. He says Where is that? We You don't have it. We have arrived finally at Parsha ha'azinu, the last speech Moses will make to his people, and the penultimate installment of his conversation with us from miles and centuries away. When we resume the plot of Deuteronomy on Simchat Torah, Moses' poetry will be little more than a wisp of air propelling us backward to Genesis 1 and the beginnings of the cosmos. We are preparing, then, to experience firsthand the strange paradox of Jewish time. Moving forward from this parasha, the flow of time splits in two. After the end of Deuteronomy, the Israelites entered their promised land, but we, the readers, return home to Genesis. Rabbi Zoe Klein writes, Your life was dreamed up long before the world was created. It waits for you like a love letter. Unfold it. Read it. Interpret it for good. Live each day knowing that your actions are writing a new scroll, spelled in heartbeats, lettered in breath, each of our days perfumed by our deeds and tucked into the crooks of ancient trees. We write our love letters to God, postmark every waking moment, and God's response is everywhere one can dream. Let's look at the Velveteen rabbi rabbi Rachel Rosenblatt. And when Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, "Take to heart all the words with which I have warned you this day, and join them upon your children that they may observe faithfully all the terms of this teaching, for this is not a trifling thing for you, it is your very life." And she writes, as our journey through the Torah scroll approaches this year's ending, And concomitant new beginning I've been thinking about what it means To take Torah seriously As Moses here instructs us to do What does it mean to observe faithfully All the terms of this teaching To understand Torah as our very life I can tell you what it doesn't mean It doesn't mean taking Torah literally Because reading Torah literally And attempting to believe Its many contradictory statements As factual reality Would no doubt make one's head explode It doesn't mean reading only the easy bits of Torah, or the fun bits, or the bits that make immediate and intuitive sense. It doesn't mean skipping over the boring or confusing parts, or the parts that contradict other parts. It doesn't mean accepting anybody else's interpretation, necessarily, but it also doesn't mean always feeling compelled to come up with your own, either. It doesn't mean watching other people engage with the text while remaining at a safe distance, comfortably aloof. It doesn't mean limiting your understanding of Torah to just the Chumash or just the Tanakh or just the written and the oral Torahs or just the feminist commentaries on the Torah or just the non-feminist ones. It doesn't mean squeezing Torah into any kind of glass slippers that would require you to trim a toe here and a slice of heel there in order to fake a comfortable fit. It doesn't mean assuming that the interpretation you're longing for is necessarily right or assuming it's necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean your version of the text to whack other people. It doesn't mean using your version of the text to whack other people whose understandings don't match the one you prefer. It doesn't mean anything liberal or conservative, progressive or restorationist or anything else besides. It doesn't mean throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it doesn't mean keeping the baby in diapers forever either. It doesn't mean idolizing the written text in such a way that we forget the unending revelation streaming beyond, through, and behind it. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Which means the only way to make Torah our lives is to dance with it. Sometimes wildly, sometimes gently, sometimes furiously, and sometimes tenderly. Sometimes cradling it in our arms like a lover, and sometimes passing it around the room like a bottle of wine. It means opening ourselves to the wisdom of our ancestors and their occasional idiocy, too. It means embracing the willingness to be wrong and the willingness to be right and the willingness to keep putting one foot in front of the other, step by step. Because that's what it's all about, doing the hokey pokey and turning the scroll around, turning it and turning it, because everything is in it, knowing all the while that what matters is not how we walk the Jewish walk, but that we care enough to walk it at all. Shabbat Shuvah and Yom Kippur are on our horizon. May we take these words of Torah into our hearts, our very hearts, and may they fuel us to move with serious and joyful intent till we come to a Shana tova. Keep on walking.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.